ran out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Everyone, my name is Lainey Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guest this week is Professor Yohur Williams, Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, who will talk about the push to restrict and censor the teachings, discrimination, and civil rights history in our public schools, as well as the attempts to ban books on these subjects occurring around the country. But first, some local news. Mayor Adams has ended the mask mandate in our schools for students five and up and says he will consider eliminating the mandate for younger kids as well. Meanwhile, the Department of Education finally released data showing that only about half of our students are fully vaccinated, with rates even lower at about 37 percent in our elementary schools. I'll put a link where you can check out the rate in your child's school in the resources section of WBAI and in the podcast. Last week, the mayor was doing lots of events and campaigning hard for extending mayoral control for another four years, which he is calling mayoral accountability. Though there is really little accountability since New Yorkers have the opportunity to vote for his office only once every four years, and they tend to make their decision on many issues other than education. That's why our former mayor, Bloomberg, when asked what people could do if they disagreed on how he ran our schools, said they could boo him at parades. Though Governor Hochul put a four-year extension of mayoral control in her proposed state budget, it was revealed yesterday that neither the state Senate nor the Assembly included this in their one-house proposed budgets. This follows a very good joint legislative hearing on the subject, at which there was pointed questioning by our legislators of the chancellor, including about the DOE's failure to lower class size. Many parents and advocates also spoke out in opposition to this system, which has prevailed now for 20 years. I'll put the links to my account of the hearings in the resource section, as well as my testimony where I focused on the lack of financial accountability at the DOE. I hope to have guests on the show soon to debate on mayoral control, and hopefully long before the end of June when it is due to lapse, be amended or extended. Meanwhile, up to now, there's been little discussion of the huge education budget cuts proposed by the mayor of more than $500 million for next year. There are budget hearings in the council a week from Monday on March 21st, and I hope people will come out to testify. I'll put the link for how to testify in the resource section. But now I'd like to introduce Professor Yahura Williams, professor and director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, about the push to restrict and censor the teaching of discrimination and civil rights history in our public schools and the numerous book bans occurring around the country. Professor Williams is an esteemed scholar of civil rights and the black power movements and an author of several books on these subjects. Full disclosure, he's also a member of the board of the Network for Public Education, which I am a member of as well. Welcome, Yohuru, and thanks so much for being with us today on Talk Out of School. My pleasure. So happy to be with you today. So let's get right into it. According to the ACLU, since 2021, 10 states have passed censorship bills that restrict restrict discussions about race and gender in our schools. This year alone, state legislators have introduced 
more than 100 new bills across 33 states, many of which explicitly target K-12 schools. Why do you think this is happening now? I think there are a couple of reasons, Lady. I think the first is that, um, unfortunately, these uh, parties have recognized this as a very effective political issue, and it's something that they can galvanize their base around um, by manufacturing this faux concern over critical race theory uh, as a um, challenge to traditional education, and particularly in terms of history and civics. The problem with this is that it's kind of growing out of what we were seeing um, under the Trump administration, and this was this push toward removing Confederate monuments and talking about um, race in schools. And certainly that conversation picked up post the murder of George Floyd, where there was kind of national reckoning around how you deal with issues of racial justice and whether um, it's appropriate to talk about that in school. Um, Certainly uh, what ended up happening is once we got to the election, you had the Republicans in particular recognizing that this was a potent um, political issue that they could use to really excite their base. And it's manufactured. So they're really talking about an issue that's not an issue. Um, the reality is that in K-12 education, critical race theory is not taught. Um, there are critical race scholars and um, educators, certainly, who have done professional development in that area. But in terms of teaching critical race theory, um, it's, it's a non-starter. But these bills are dangerous because they work upon that assumption. And they really introduce some, you know, for lack of a better term, scary uh, 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 proposed reforms. Um, and again, I use that word loosely um, to help parents navigate uh, the curriculum as if schools are their enemies and teachers are their enemies. And I think that's the other part that's very scary about this. It's not just that they're, um, you know, looking at um, the curriculum and have no idea about that curriculum, but they're creating um, this this faux divide between teachers and parents, which I think potentially is very uh, damaging as well. Can you explain what critical race theory really is and why those this term was used sort of as a boogeyman to attack our schools? Well, critical race theory really emerged in um, the 1970s by legal scholars and some of the more well-known um, scholars associated with it are people like Derek Bell, Richard Delgado, certainly Kimberly Crenshaw. And it was a response to the civil rights and black power movements. And this enduring question that kind of emerged out of those movements, after you had so much activism and the push for, for example, a Civil Rights Act of 1964 and a Voting Rights Act of 1965, why didn't we see massive changes in our legal system? Why didn't we see massive changes in structures that ultimately would guarantee um, racial equality across the board? And so critical race theory said there has to be some explanation for this. And it start, it sought to um, kind of delve into that question in a deeper way. Um, one of the things, for example, one of the tenets of critical race theory is that racism in some sense, or not in some sense, racism is normalized in our society and in our culture. And so one of the reasons that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Voting Rights Act of 1965 proved ineffective is because racism is so deeply ingrained in the fabric of American society and culture. When you got legislation that actually would negate um, the, the ability of states to deny people the right to vote based on race, they came up with other criteria, which obviously also used race as a category. And we're seeing that today in the modern manifestation of, of voter disfranchisement laws, um, such as voter ID and um, changing of polling places, all of which are racialized. And so, you know, that's part of the um, the, the cornerstone of, of critical race theory is to, to interrogate why that's the case. I'll give you a very good example. Even though critical race theory is focused on the U.S., 
A very good example of this is playing out globally now is what's happening in the Ukraine with the exodus of um, African students, Nigerian students in particular. Um, CNN ran a story today about two Nigerian students who were seeking to um, leave the country in the aftermath of uh, the bombing uh, by uh, Putin's army. And they were placing people in different groups based on race. And so um, uh, white Ukrainians or Ukrainians were placed in one category, Africans, uh, that was the, the category, were placed in another category, and then um, other Europeans. And so these students talked about um, that racialization, which is very common here in the United States as well. So we, this is not, you know, I think it's just a, a great global example of what a people of color deal with in the United States um, in, in any number of ways. And so those are the, the kind of the basic tenets. Most people, when they think about critical race theory, will think about the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and this idea of intersectionality. The idea that um, although race is important, we all show up with multiple identities. So to be a Black woman or a, a, a Latina, um, but also LBGTQ, all that matters. And those various identities definitely impact the way that we show up in conversations, in the way that we view history, on the way that we um, talk about politics, the way that we express ourselves and, and um, show up in the culture. Critical race theory, theorists believe that's important to really delve at and get to a deeper understanding of how we can change systems, to really understand those tenets and to, and to work toward solutions that don't take the lazy way out of assuming that legislation can produce lasting change. It's going to be something much deeper than that, and that's required. The reason there's been a pushback against that is that um, you had, uh, you know, really politicians recognize this is a convenient boogeyman in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and what they called wokeism. On this idea that this racial reckoning that happened uh, two summers ago uh, was dangerous and threatening to um, uh, American youth and that what was responsible for this wasn't the parade of deaths that we saw at the hands of police um, you know, beginning, it started long before George Floyd, but certainly in 2020, beginning with the Breonna Taylor case and then culminating um, in, in the murder of George Floyd, which we all witnessed uh, um, by Derek Chauvin here in Minneapolis. Uh, and so this idea was to not focus on that, but to focus on critical race theory as the boogeyman, that um, young white children were be, being taught to hate themselves and to hate the country because they were being exposed to narratives about American history that privileged the oppression of people of color, um, that talked about slavery, that talked about the failure of Reconstruction, uh, that posited that um, why hadn't legislation been enough? Um, and those, again, aren't coming out or growing out of critical race theory directly, but that was what they were using as a means of saying, this is what we've got to arrest, this is what we have to get rid of in our schools. And this may seem like an obvious question to many of our listeners, but um, I mean, the answer may seem obvious, but I'd just like to hear you articulate about why it's so important to, to be able to teach these concepts and the, the real history of civil rights struggle in our country and the meaning that it still persists today. You know, it's such a great question, Lainey, because um, a couple of weeks ago I was on a, a panel with a gentleman from the Heritage Foundation who was, you know, doing the whole charter school and, and um critical race theory rap. I mean, it's just like, it's almost a, a playbook now at this point, um, which is, you know, the foundations of an assault on public education as we know it, and which tries to make the argument that um, history and civics education in particular 
which have been, you know, non-existent in a conversation where the focus was on STEM for so many years, where all we heard is that you don't need this, you need STEM education. Um, and now all of a sudden, there's this awakening to the importance of social studies and civics in particular. I'm in New York City a few days ago. Um, Mayor Adams shocked me by talking about uh, a giant push for civics education in the city of New York, when in fact, the city of New York has one of the best civics education modules in the country. Um, you can look at some of that work um, online. They've done an amazing job, Civics for All, which um, incorporates uh, a really vigorous interrogation of issues of race, class, and gender. Again, not critical race theory, but culturally relevant um, curriculum that's looking at uh, the city of New York uh, uh, school district where, um, you know, hundreds of languages are spoken, um, re really the, the cross section, not only the United States, but the cross section of the world. And so you have to have a curriculum that teaches civics in, a multi in multiple contexts. So that, that's important. Um, all of that to say that um, what ended up happening is you, they, they found this strategy that they were able to base on this idea that this was just part of this great awakening and that critical race theory was teaching young white kids to hate the United States, to hate America, and they had to uh, prevent that from happening. And so critical race theory became this boogeyman. When in, in fact, as I mentioned, um, you, you'll be hard pressed to find critical race theory. Uh, it just doesn't exist. It's not in any curriculum in the country. You'll certainly find educators will identify themselves as, um, uh, you know, steeped in a pedagogy. Uh, that's influenced by critical race theory, but that doesn't impact what they teach. It's the way that they think about holistically the work that they do in the classroom and the work of what it means to be an educator, particularly in a diverse school district. And so that's important work. And I think that's where the distinction has to be made, that this idea that somehow critical race theory um, or, or, or white students being taught to hate themselves because they're being exposed to um, the history of inequality in this country is is fundamentally wrong. And I'll give you a good example of this, um, Lainey, in terms of something that happened with me in Florida a couple of months ago. So back in January, I was supposed to uh, head into Florida to do a professional development with teachers there. And the week before I went, uh, middle school teachers were scheduled to um, work with a professor from Flagler College. And the um, district went through the materials for that professional development. And one of the um, teachers who was going to co-lead this had included an image of Colin Kaepernick, along with other images to show the history of protest and kind of the evolution of peaceful protest in the United States. The district identified this and canceled the professional development. They first asked the teacher to remove it. And then um, they decided that they were going to censor um, these materials and not only censor it, they were going to cancel it all out. That professor, of course, raised the flag and said, you know, we have to push back against this. There's something fundamentally wrong about, um, you know, denying students the opportunity to grapple with something that they're experiencing every day. This is the, the problem with this. In fact, I uh, had a conversation with a gentleman yesterday and, you know, in the same way that we're being asked as educators now, particularly um, K-12 educators, to help students contextualize what's happening in the Ukraine. That's the same moment that we were in two years ago in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. It's the same moment we were in two years ago when the pandemic hit. Educators aren't often thought about in this regard, but they're critical first responders. And in a culture where we send our children off to school and entrust them to educators who have to help them grapple with, along with parents, along with community, the meaning, make meaning of what's happening in the world, to deny educators the opportunity to do that, to, to put their jobs at risk to make them vulnerable, I think is um, not only uh, unconscionable in terms of 
politicizing what happens in the classroom, it's immoral. So it just struck me that, you know, a lot of the, the discussion of this trend has talked about how it's a, a sort of politically manipulated to divide parents and um, arouse their fears and their resentment against, um, you know, sort of the liberal ethos, supposedly, that has, um, you know, pervaded the discussion of some of these issues related to civil rights and gender discrimination. But it strikes me that possibly it also could be a function of the fact that parents themselves may feel that they're losing control of their own children. And that I think a lot of the polling shows that the younger the younger you are, the more likely you are to be progressive and liberal on a lot of the issues surrounding gender, um, gay rights, uh, um, civil rights, and that perhaps these people are not just fearful of losing their quote-unquote white privilege, but they're also fearful of losing their control over their children. What do you think about that? I love that analysis because I think there's a great parallel with the um, 1960s. I think parents in that moment in the late 50s and early 60s um, were probably caught off guard by the activism and the level of engagement of young people in that moment who thought that they could change the world and who were um, in a position uh, to essentially by, um, in terms of not only how they voted, but the um, organizations that they joined, the politics that they embraced, um, really helped to change the political landscape of the nation in that moment. I think the same thing is happening today. And, and what you just described to me feels a lot like what we're watching in some of these states where, you know, um, people talked about this at length in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. In fact, um, Al Sharpton in his eulogy for uh, George Floyd um, in June you know, just a few weeks after the killing, said, when I looked out and saw more white people marching in some cases than African-Americans, I knew it was a different time and a different season. Well, in the same way that that might have been encouraging the people of color, I think it was frightening in some sectors. Um, and, you know, people couldn't believe genuinely that these young people have been drawn to this because they believed that it was fundamentally wrong. They had to be drawn to it because they were being manipulated or brainwashed uh, by the left. And so I, I think it's a it's a very... Um, important way to perhaps think about this and, and what's motivating some of this, um, particularly in states like Texas, where, you know, the LBGTQ um, conversation, I think, is um, not getting as much attention as it deserves. Now, we think about how, again, it's funny that we're talking about the backlash against, uh, against critical race theory, but this is one of the benefits of critical race theory. Um, those with intersectional identities, to be a student of color and to be LBGTQ in Texas, now you are in the, you know, the crosshairs twice. And so this is why those conversations are so important. And yet, um, you know, the irony is that there's this pushback against this lens that could be very helpful, particularly in helping young people navigate, um, you know, uh, not just, it's not about education, it's about what Thurgood Marshall talked about in 1958 in the aftermath of Brown versus Board of Education. Education is not the teaching of the three R's, it's about citizenship. And so fundamentally, what is the state of Texas? What is the state of Indiana? Um, what is the mayor of New York City saying about citizenship when they adopt policies and procedures and practices which negate the ability of educators to teach these materials or which kind of truncate um, in a broad sense what it means to develop critical thinkers. And that means not censoring. That means creating an opportunity for, for students to, to develop the capacity to think critically about real world challenges. And have real discussion and debates about 
what's happening in the real world that affects their lives. This is Laini Hameson on Talk Out of School, WBAI-FM 99.5 and WBAI.org. And I'm talking to Professor Yahura Williams about the attempts nationwide to ban the discussion and teaching of civil rights and discrimination in our public schools. Perhaps the most egregious proposal recently introduced and the one that's gotten a lot of attention is the Florida bill called Parental Rights in Education, better known as the Don't Say Gay bill. And you just mentioned um, that issue as well, which would ban any classroom discussion about sexual or orientation or gender identity and at the same time require teachers to report to parents if their children are gay. Um, also, I think it's important to mention, particularly now in Women's History Month, that that area of, of study is being attacked as well. And 10 days ago, the Wyoming State Senate passed a bill barring the University of Wyoming from funding any gender studies courses. Um, can you talk a little bit also about the curriculum transparency laws and how they relate to classroom censorship. Some of them would even allow surveillance to take place in the classroom. Can you explain? Yeah. Um, the, the transparency laws kind of grew out of that same impulse to, um, and, and it sounds on the surface uh, like a good idea. Parents should know what's happening in the schools and they should have access to materials and they should be able to, you know, know what uh, teachers are teaching about and what's informing the curriculum. So on the surface, it sounds like a good idea. Um, what, what, what it is in reality is an attempt to gag teachers. Um, and it is also, it's also had a chilling effect in education. So the idea is that um, parents now have access to the curriculum, not simply to be aware or made aware of what's being taught, but to challenge what's being taught or to um, kind of exercise uh, their influence and in, 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 uh, vote on what's being taught uh, in, in class. These laws by themselves are um, especially pernicious because they begin with the assumption that, um, as I mentioned in the very beginning, education as a structure is the enemy. And so parents need to be vigilant because education is out to poison the mind of the American youth. That premise, um, if you kind of understand that, when you start to look at those bills, it becomes very obvious why so many people um, are concerned about this. Organizations from um, the Network of Public Education, which we're both affiliated with, to the American Civil Liberties Union are concerned about what's happening in that space because they recognize that this is the worst type of censorship um, and you're, you're embarking on. And more importantly, I think long-term, the damage it will do to students, uh, particularly, again, when we think about um, the development of critical thinking, the ability to kind of understand and, and discern between multiple viewpoints, that's being stripped. And so there's only going to be one viewpoint, and that'll be determined, you know, not by, you know, by this popular constitutionalism, which is happening in these areas. So it's, you know, a lack of trust in educators. It's a, an assault on um, public education as well. And although people tend to discount this in terms of how it impacts them directly, um, you just mentioned it, Laney, and it's very important. It's like, oh, well, we don't really care about, you know, this with regard to students of color or African-American history. Then when you understand how this could impact particularly uh, parochial schools and questions of religion, very damning. So the target might have been Muslim students, but it ends up or could end up negatively impacting Catholic, Lutheran. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are because these laws are constructed in such a uh, severe way 
that, you know, they, you know, it creates all kinds of opportunity for them to be interpreted in, in, in a broad way that could hurt a, a large range of people. So this is a, is a very a big concern. Just to kind of give your, your um, audience a kind of a clear example of, of what one of these would look like. Um, these are laws that are about not only sharing what teachers are doing, but mandating in some cases that those materials be placed online. Um, kind of inviting that scrutiny. In some cases, um, in Florida, for example, there has even been conversation about um, streaming uh, classes so that parents can watch in and weigh in in real time on what's being taught. Uh, and again, which would not only you know gag teachers but gag the students as well, who are obviously not going to want to speak freely in front of their parents or their friends' parents about issues that concern them. Which I think is is criminal. I mean, it, it's a you think about the chilling effect in that way, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned something that was very important um, in the question that I think is lost in this as well, and that's the idea that uh, you know mandating making teachers mandated reporters with regard to students who are navigating um, the issue of sexuality um, and policing that behavior. Uh, that's pernicious, and you know that's why I used the word immoral, and I didn't use it um, lightly earlier. Uh, there's a real issue when we think about this. Is young people need access to role models and need access to mentors and need access to adults who can help to steward them and, and point them in the right direction. The assumption that um, teachers would then have a duty to report that back to parents, again, on the surface to some people sounds like a good idea, but you're cutting off a pathway for students to get adult guidance on critical issues when they're not always comfortable going to their parents. So you're creating in some sense, uh, not in some sense, you're creating um, a problematic paradigm here, which is going to really handcuff teachers and, you know, deny students, I think importantly, access to um, adults who will be able to help them kind of navigate some of those those issues, which are thorny issues. So this is all to me, um, we we understand where it's coming from, but we should all be very concerned about this and be fighting back against this with everything that we have, because the long-term impact of this will be very detrimental um, across the board. Again, not just communities of color, which is where everybody thinks, well, this is just about, you know, critical race theory and the pushback against wokeism. It's much deeper than that. And anyone who looks at any of these laws um, or any of these transparency bills would uh, quickly understand why everybody is so concerned about this. So some of these bills also include drastic penalties and threaten teachers with being fired, schools with losing state funds, and even students being fined if they're caught talking about issues related to race or gender. Teachers are already hugely demoralized right now because of the pandemic, the low pay, all the chaos that has occurred over the last two to three years. How do you think this might affect further affect their mood and decision on whether to stay in the profession or not? You know, Lenny, I'm worried about, uh, we've already started to see see this. I mean, it, it started um, long before this moment, but, you know, teachers who were tasked with the enormous responsibility um, uh, during the pandemic to transition online and to deal with a host of issues which are hard enough to deal with in classroom in person, but then have to have to deal with that on an online um, environment, um, even more problematic. Uh, and then the low morale from, you know, here in the Twin Cities, uh, you, there's all kinds of labor issues. Um, the defunding. There's a strike of- happening right now in Minneapolis Absolutely. over class size, pay, and other issues, right? Yeah, which, 
And again, I, I'm, I'm glad you named it. I, I think sometimes, you know, um, I want people to understand this is a labor dispute. And if you're in labor, you should be looking at what's happening here in Minneapolis with the teachers and, and asking yourself some serious questions about why it's important to support teachers as a laboring body, which is advocating for the same things that we've seen other, you know, um, which has been central to the labor movement or organized labor in this country. But, you know, people sometimes lose that context. What teachers are asking for here in Minneapolis and other places are, um, you know, issues of workplace safety um, in some sense. Um, It's issues of manageability. But they're asking about this with the most precious commodity that that Americans love to claim that we have, and that's our youth. So when you're advocating for smaller class sizes because you want to be able to really help uh, students and, and be present and to make sure there's a, a classroom culture where every student is affirmed and where you have an opportunity to really be able to, why there's a pushback against that, I find you know un, uh, incomprehensible because that's really what um, teachers here are, are, are talking about. The, um, un, the fact that they're underpaid, the fact that the um, responsibilities continue to drift, the fact that you have, uh, in the case of us talking about the pandemic in particular, students being, I'm sorry, teachers being asked to put their lives at risk to return to the classroom at a time where we still, you know, I go back to September of last year, people still didn't know where we were going with regard to the variant. And now all of a sudden, you know, everyone's saying, we'll take the masks off, this is over. And, you know, teachers are kind of sitting in the middle of the sand, you know, just two years ago, um, people were dying at ma- in massive numbers from this disease. And it's just like, oh, we're, you know, everything's back to normal. Let's just go back to normal. So I worry about a mass exodus from the classroom in this moment. I, I, I think that um, in particular, uh, and we're seeing this across the board, teachers in more rural districts, teachers in, in battleground states are really on the front lines. Um, and the canaries in the coal mine in uh, much bigger um, political debate that has the potential to continue to divide this country. And I worry that we're going to lose some really great educators because they are just going to become so tired of trying to, to deal with this um, for in a moment where, quite frankly, there's so much more opportunity in other fields. And that's what we're seeing in other areas, too, is people are just kind of finding other things to do. Um, and there's certainly, you know, uh, we, we hear about it all the time, challenges in other spaces for um, workers. So it's not if this is the moment to do it. And I worry we're going to lose some great educators as a result. So just to shift a little bit in the subject, there are also increased efforts by state lawmakers and local school boards to ban books from schools and public libraries, primarily books by and about people of color, LGBTQ people, and other marginalized groups. They've threatened to ban The Bluest Eye by Nobel Prize winning author Toni Morrison and the Pulitzer Prize winning graphic novel Mouse by Artie Spiegelman, which deals with the Holocaust. Um, saying that they deal with inappropriate or uncomfortable subjects. Um, I, I, I was looking into this, and I, it turned out that that before 2020, the the, the most proposal, the, the books that were proposed the most to be banned were the Harry Potter books, because they were thought to be anti-Christian in some way. But the t- the two books that are now most often proposed to be banned are is a book called Melissa, which is a middle grade book about a trans child. And Ibram X. Kendi's book, Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, You and You, which is a young adult adaptation of his book on anti-racism. So what, what do you think about this trend and what are the real problems with 
banning these sorts of books from school libraries or public libraries? Look, three big problems, Lainey, for me. Um, I think the first is what we've already talked about, which is the fact that, you know, this is where schools are supposed to be spaces where we invite young people to think critically about these issues and to be exposed to these issues under the guidance of um, a, a teacher, a trained educator who can help create a culture of respect and allow them to kind of debate and navigate these issues in, in that environment. That's what we, you know, um, that's what we would hope uh, people would view our schools as, as doing. Um, the second issue is that you know, this is censorship. But, I mean, it's just plain and simple censorship, but it's a targeted censorship that, I, that points to the fact that this is really um, aimed at the voices of marginalized people in our society as a whole. Melissa is a great example of that. Of trying to, to ban the bluest eye. And then in terms of Ibram Kendi, who's a, you know, full disclosure, a friend of mine. Um, in fact, I remember when he was working on Stamp from the beginning, um, and it was at that point titled Mind Games. Um, you know, in that moment, in the aftermath of the murder of Trayvon Martin, with so much that was happening in the country, uh, Ibram Kendi was, or Kendi was trying to, you know, discern, how do I write a book that points us back to the question that this has been with us um, from the very beginning. It's America's original sin. And the reason we have so much difficult uh, shedding it is that we don't confront it. So the irony is getting rid of a book like Stamp from the beginning that says, let's go back and look at the ideas of the founding fathers. Let's look at what Jefferson wrote in Notes on Virginia. And let's interrogate what it means when Jefferson denies that Phyllis Wheatley is capable of being an author of any caliber because of her race. Um, that's significant, that this is a person that we lionize for being um, an enlightened, um, a, a child of the Enlightenment who wasn't very enlightened with regard to thinking about issues of race and who relied on pseudoscience to make those, those um, and whose assumptions were based on pseudoscience. Why that is threatening to, to people simply, I think, allows teachers to talk about the complexity of what it means to be human. And the United States is a work in progress, this kind of evolution of all of us collectively. Like no one, uh, and I'll give you a good example of this, Lainey. I, on that same Heritage Foundation um, debate, uh, gentlemen, one of the things that I shared on that evening was we were two weeks out of the Challenger disaster memorial. And I remember 1986. And um, what I said to him in that moment, I think this is important when people kind of try to politicize this is, I'll never forget Ronald Reagan's speech that he delivered that afternoon um, after the morning of the Challenger disaster. And I know it was penned by Peggy Noonan, and most people, when they think about that speech, think about Reagan's haunting words about the astronauts slipping the surly bonds of Earth, and it was beautiful. But what I always remember about that speech is halfway through the speech, um, Reagan says, school children were watching today. And we have a duty and a responsibility to help those young people understand what this meant. And he says, so that the loss of the, the lives of those astronauts are not in vain, they need to understand that unlike the Soviet Union, we don't hide from our history. We don't hide from our failures. In fact, we have to do that because we've always been pioneers and as pioneers. Now, again, problematic as it is, I love, I shared with those teachers in Florida, I shared on a day and every chance I get a chance that, you know, this isn't a liberal enterprise. Ronald Reagan, who is the, you know, you, you want to disagree with this? Take a look at Ronald Reagan's speech and why he says that we have to look at history and all of its warts. The other thing I love about talking about Challenger is that that was the most, at that time, the most diverse crew that we had seen. There's an African-American on the crew, several women, including Krista McAuliffe, the first teacher in space, an Asian-American. Every one of those individuals had a story. They came to Challenger. You know, you think about Kennedy 
1960 pledging to go to the moon. And then you get to 1986. And the story that we're telling as a nation is the first chance we get to put somebody in space other than an astronaut, who do we choose? A teacher. Why? Because they're always helping people navigate those navigating frontiers. And now we don't trust teachers to help young people navigate frontiers of identity, uh, to deal with issues of, of our history that are pertinent now more than ever in terms of voting rights and civil rights. More importantly, we can't tell a triumphant history unless we deal with the warts. This is kind of what Reagan was saying in that moment. I think this is important. If we don't understand how Ronald McNair gets to be the African-American astronaut in 1986, you got to tell the history of slavery. You got to tell the history of Jim Crow in order for that to be a moment of triumph. Same is true of the Asian-American um, astronaut who's there that day. Same is true of the women who were part of that crew and the immigrant men who were part of that crew, right? This is the, the history that would be truly celebratory because it doesn't run from the fact that it's an evolving process that gets us there. And I think, again, when people you know, talk about these issues and why it's dangerous to ban books or to ban or deny teachers the opportunity to deal with the um, complexity of American history, that's at the heart of it. That's why it's dangerous. That's why it undermines, you know, um, democracy and democratic practice. And it recalls that well-known phrase that if you don't recall history, you're doomed to repeat it. So the more that we can recall history in all its details and warts, the more likely we are to progress as a nation as, and as individuals. Um, now, what's one interesting thing that I, that I think there's been more discussion and investigation of lately is how some of the parent groups that are leading these efforts or seem to be leading these efforts to both censor the discussion of these topics of history and civics in our schools and to ban books like Parents Defending Education and Moms Defending Liberty is that they're actually closely linked to well-funded conservative organizations that are funded by right-wing billionaires such as Charles Koch. What's interesting is that these organizations and funders are also engaged in a multi-year long-term effort to privatize our public schools and expand the use of charter schools and vouchers. Can you explain how these issues are interlinked? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the things that's, again, um, so disturbing about this. This is ALEC. I mean, all these bills are um, written by the same cabal. And Can you again, explain what ALEC is for people who might not know? Sure. The um, uh, uh, legislative caucus that is ultimately funded by the Kochs that is responsible. It's the American for Legislative Exchange Council or something yeah, like that. Mm -hmm. um, that's ultimately responsible for the. I'm, I'm sorry, Lena, you were asking me to define it. I apologize. Um, no, it's a hard acronym to know. I think that yeah. that's part of the. And, and you raise it in a way that I think is important. See, Americans don't know that there is a body behind this that's doing that work and is actually um, offering to draft those bills and to provide those to local legislators. So when we think about this in terms of, um, uh, you know, our, our Republican form of government and democratic practice, people need to understand there are these billionaires who think that they understand best what is best for American education who are then um, providing funding to allow uh, ALEC and others to draft legislation and then make that available to state, local, and um, uh, federal legislators and to say, this is what you should be doing. And we know that that's the case, not only because they're very, um, you know, it's not like they're trying to hide it, but those bills are almost mirror images of one another, including down to, in some cases, the misspellings. Um, and and, and the, it's, it's actually comical when you think about it. 
So that's the threat. If we think about this, it, this way, people talk about this and frame this in terms of local control. They frame this in terms of um, parents needing to be engaged and, and communities wanting to be engaged in what's happening in, in their schools. But this is the antithesis of that because this isn't um, driven by you know people in a community saying we're confronted with this issue and, and we want to know more and we want to be involved. This is this body that exists in some other space that's defining these issues and then basically packaging this and delivering it to um, lawmakers who are pushing it through without any kind of rhyme or reason or any um, uh, connection to reality and what's happening in their schools. And, and that's scary. Uh, one of the reasons I think, you know, so many people were concerned about Betsy DeVos, um, not that, uh, you know, uh, Arnie Duncan was much better, but the reality is Betsy DeVos was part and parcel of, you know, that um, those efforts and this idea that big money and, and billionaires are going to determine the course of public education and the privatization and the other things that we've seen that are associated with that charters and vouchers, which um, really are detrimental to students of color. When we look at, and I know your audience knows this, these issues well, the high suspension rates, um, the focus on high stakes testing, I think all of those issues, which are decimating American schools, the um, undermining of the um, of, of uh, faculty in terms of bringing in TFA, you know, untrained teachers. You know, again, you're forcing some of the best educators out with this foolishness and at the same time creating the opportunity for untrained um, teachers to come in, educators to come in, and the, the um, inherent problems that that creates for young people and can, can create for us long-term, if we are going to get back to something that Jefferson talked about at length that I think we can embrace, and that's the need for an informed electorate. We can't have that um, if you don't have the um, access to um, quality education and you're not limiting or censoring what teachers can talk about, particularly when so much of this is aimed at current events. So the idea that you can't talk about current events. Well, the irony to me is, and again, um, I've been sharing this with people at length. It's interesting to me how much people want now to under half a dozen things here in the Twin Cities that people are trying to unpack what's happening in Ukraine. In the same way that, you know, I can understand why parents or or the community in Kentucky post Breonna Taylor would want to unpack race in the same way here in the Twin City. But then there was this pushback against this. So we can't do this. We can't talk about this. Um, In the same way we think about Eric Garner in New York City, or um, we go back to um, uh, uh, Ferguson and Michael Brown. You had curriculums that came out from people who were external to the schools because you had this demand by students to really want to talk about this and unpack this. And there was no way to do that in the classroom. And now we're denying educators. And some teachers came up with curriculum, Black Lives Matters in schools. A lot of teachers were involved in that as well. And they felt that it was important. I'm sorry. They thought it was important not just to teach the full range of real history to kids, but in a way that was engaging to them and that mattered to them and that in involved them in what was happening right now, um, that this was another tool to make sure that they were legitimately um, engaged in the material that was being taught. Um, to your point, Lainey, they're on the ground with those students. They know what those questions, they experience that every day. And so they know, you know, a great example is what happened out in Seattle where you had young students, you know, kind of looking at what was happening in the National Football um, League. Now, it just, just wasn't in Seattle, but you know, across the country and taking a knee. You need a curriculum to help those students understand what that moment meant and why this was part of a long tradition of nonviolent direct action protest. 
The irony to me, again, post-George Floyd, is that when everybody complained about the rioting that was happening, you know, the argument in that moment was, well, when you cut off conversations about peaceful protests, you leave young people to only see what's happening in the street. So you've actually denied the, the full range of conversation about ways that people can take action that are constructive, um, that raise issues and, and, you know, don't result in what everybody was decrying in the, the limiting, limited rioting that happened in some cities in the aftermath of the Floyd murder. Yeah, and in a way, just getting back to the funders and the the, the right wing billionaires who are behind or supporting a lot of this legislation, in a way, they can't lose. They see because either they are they are successful at sanitizing our history in the way that they would like to see it sanitized, or the parents who are concerned about this get turned off the public schools and want to send their kids to charter schools or or private schools, and that will help build the demand for privatization. So either way, they win if they make this a huge issue that divides parents and, you know, creates a lot of controversy. So it's kind of brilliant in a way that they should be investing money and time um, in this issue. And it's really concerning to a lot of us who don't want to see our schools, you know, affected in this way, but also don't want to see politicians uh, profit from this movement. Recently, Republican uh, Glenn Youngkin won the governorship in Virginia, uh, partly on education issues or primarily on education issues. And a bunch of San Francisco school board members in a very liberal town were recalled. Um, Many parents are angry about the school closures, the mask mandates in schools, and, and observers say Democrats are at risk of losing seats in the midterm elections, partly because of the disaffection of swing voters and especially parents in suburban districts on the issue of public schools in general. Do you think that Democrats, um, what do you think that Democrats should do to fight back on these issues? And do you think they need a positive education agenda? And if so, what should it be? That's a, it's a great question, Lainey. Um, and San Francisco is a good example because there, that really was about the narrative that was spun um, by the Republicans that uh, the reason that there was this poor response, quote unquote, poor response to the pandemic is that these school board members were more concerned about critical race theory and issues of race and wokeism than they were about what was happening in the classroom um, and, and what was happening in terms of the response to the pandemic. That's narrative. And so I think the first thing Democrats have to do is push back on the narrative. We need to construct a narrative based in reality that challenges the mythology that um, conservatives have been very effective at promoting with regard to what's happening in our schools. I thought we were very effective at this, ironically, under the Obama administration when there were policies that were happening at the national um, level that activists at the local level were concerned about. And we were very, you know, we were able to push back and to challenge the waiting for Superman mentality around um, the defunding of public education and charters and vouchers and all that. For some and reason, the, testing opt out, the opt out of testing movement was very effective, I think, in drawing attention to the the weaknesses and, and the fallibility and the destructive impact of high stakes testing and over testing in our schools as well. And that was a movement that was joined in by both uh, leftist and, and conservative parents alike. And I'm glad you mentioned that. 
um, Lainey, because that to me was the best example is what happened with regard to opt out, because what they were able to do is based on facts, based on data, based on shared interests, demonstrate why this was corrosive and destructive to young people. That's the blueprint in this moment. Um, for the Democrats, but it should be the blueprint for any sane, rational people who are looking at this and going, this can't stand in the same way that I hope you'd be able to build, we were able to build coalitions around um, high stakes testing. Anybody that looks at this and and begins to question the long-term negative impact that this can have on young people in terms of really being able to understand what the tenets are of what it means to be a member of a participatory democracy and how important information is in order to make decisions. Um, uh, Pluralism, cultural pluralism, how important it is to understand the people um, in the communities who we are, who we share space with. I think all of those questions pivot around this issue. And so I think it's a not just a, a question of changing the narrative, but also shifting the focus away from don't let this be politicized in this way. But let's talk about, again, the people who are going to be most impacted by this negatively, which are the young people who are you know, kind of left in this. And then last last but not least, and I think this is um you know, probably obvious, but incredibly important. In the aftermath of January 6th in particular, uh, you people have just kind of assumed that this polarized version of the U.S. is, you know, where people kind of take issues on black and white, you're red or you're blue, and that's it. And it kind of speaks to what we were talking about in just a, a few seconds ago. Um The reality is that January 6th is the best example of what happens when you sanitize curriculum. January 6th is the best best example of what happens when people are unaware of the symbolism, although I would argue that the people who went to the Capitol that they were very aware of the symbolism they used in terms of the Confederate flag and the noose. Um, Symbols of racial terror and symbols of, you know, um, separating oneself from the government and and the Civil War and, and the Confederacy and all of that. Very dangerous. That in and of itself is a lesson in why history matters and why it's important for us to start thinking for anyone who watched that and said, this is not what I signed up for. That's dangerous and fundamentally damaging. I think about um, Dwight David Eisenhower's uh, in 1957 at Little Rock, what he says to the people of the United States in that moment, where he basically makes the case, we fought a civil war um, in 1861, from 1861 to 1865, and the union prevailed. So if we're a nation of laws, as Lincoln suggested, and we're a nation that wants to um, privilege our foundations in this Republican form of government where union is important, we have to respect the mechanisms of government. We have to find ways to influence the political process peacefully. That's what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. If that's what you believe, then it becomes imperative for us to find that middle ground in terms of not just the narrative, but the movement to push back against this. And that requires us to, you know, quite frankly, and I think um, uh, this is difficult for some people to hear because, you know, on both sides, there are those who like the polls, try to find the middle and, and kind of push through. Not a very popular um, post-Trump position to take because, you know, uh, Trump made the extreme so cartoonish it's very hard for, for any of us at this point to, to assume that there are people who are watching this from the other side who are going, I don't agree with that. Like, I think that my student, uh, you know, my, my child should have access to, or my child is LBGTQ, and I don't agree with what's happening here. Or, you know, I think that we should be talking about um, what's happening with, uh, you, you know, the killing of Black people in the United States as much as we should be talking about Ukraine, Ukraine or the anti-Semitism or the anti-Asian hate which have boiled over in recent years to frightening proportions um, in certain communities. 
to not talk about that, I think fundamentally, or to create a narrative whereby, you know, this is Democrat and Republican rather than American or, or um, civically responsible people who are concerned about this is problematic. I think that's what the Dems need to do. But more importantly, I think that's just what, you know, um, every American citizen should be concerned about and should be doing to, to promote truth and not to engage in, you know, we, we love to brand January 6th and, and Trump's um, not being Trump's lies about the, the election, the big lie, but the big lie is the, to write a history around this that negates that that's exactly what we're dealing with is a big lie. In finding that middle that we can all agree on, at least in principle, and then seeing where that resides in actual history and current events and how we, that, that those ideals or whatever they are can actually be exhibited in reality. It seems like it's harder and harder to do. And, you know, I'm just hoping that we figure that out as a country and that that can be exemplified in our schools as well. Uh, we've talked a little bit about what the Democrats should do as a party. Um, I still think that what you answered is a bit abstract to most people, but specific, more specifically, what do you think parents and teachers should do in their own schools and communities in order to fight for um, the sort of education that their children really need and deserve, not just in terms of, you know, getting good math instruction, getting, you know, good, good instruction in, in reading and literature and science and all that, but in terms of history and civics, how in a practical way should parents and teachers fight back against these trends that we've been talking about? And these are a little bit more concrete. Um, I agree, Lainey. First and foremost, I think parents need to, if, if they're not already um, engaged, be very much aware, engaged and invested in understanding what's happening at the district level and even within the community around um, the pushback against CRT. Here in um, St. Paul, for example, uh, a group sent around letters um, to uh, parents. Um, and this was a group that was basically taking a page out of the civil rights movement, grand, grassroots organizing. So grassroots organizing has to be challenged by grassroots organizing. We need parents to band together to study this issue and then to push back against that by taking a number of very concrete steps. Number one, articulating in the strongest possible way for support for educators to do what educators do and to support teachers in that way. Um, that can come in the form of, uh, uh, you know, going out to the city council or, or, or participating in school board meetings and just offering a full-throated um, support for educators to do their jobs. Um, secondly, uh, challenging, being aware of, investigating if that's happening and then challenging this legislation that's bubbling up, which in some communities, and I've heard this on several occasions, I'm sure you've heard the same thing, where, you know, people said, we didn't even know. This just kind of snuck through because people weren't looking for it. And so there needs to be active resistance. So this can't be something that we're passive about in the same way that you mentioned opt out earlier to page out of that playbook. If you see it creeping, um, it's too late to challenge it uh, by the time that they're, you know, it's kind of making its way through whatever process. It has to be challenged from the very beginning. And that proactive kind of stance is, is critical. Um, number three is really educating um, yourselves. This is for parents in particular. Uh, people are throwing around a lot of terminology. Uh, find a trusted source that isn't on one of the extremes in terms of, you know, network news and try to really educate yourself about what's happening with regard to these issues. And then importantly, share. So, you know, 
people talk about social media uh, and how it's been misused to promote um, lies and, and untruths. You know, be that uh, um, that space in your social media world that you know um, pushes back against this and says, "Here's here is Richard Delgado's work, or here is an article by um, Kimberly Crenshaw, or here is something by you know this is not what you know. I don't see this in my child's curriculum, but I can see the value of why this would be you know pertinent." And then last but not least, and I think this is, is um, very important, run for, I, you, I, people think, assume that when you say run for office, it means you got to be running for mayor or city council or alderman, the school board, um, yeah. you know, run for the school board, um, get involved. Like is, is, people are looking at the San Francisco example, those individuals that wound up on the board who were kind of, um, you, you know, uh, forced off, recalled actually were uh, drawn to that because they wanted to make a difference and represent the multicultural uh, nature of that community. We need more parents to adopt that mindset now to say, if, if you're going to be the wall against this, you, you've got to invest in running right. for that position, sitting in that space and pushing back in that space because we need it. Thank you so much for being with us today, uh, Professor Yohura Williams. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope you can come back another time. I agree. Parents should run for school boards where there are elected school boards. We're not lucky enough here in New York City to have one. So take advantage of your democracy and, 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 and run for office. Um, I'm going to put a lot of some links to some of Professor Williams' books in the resources section, as well as some of the other issues that we talked about today. Again, our show is available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. We need the support of listeners to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in the city that doesn't run ads. There's no other show on the air that delves into the issues and controversies affecting our public schools like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate to WBAI, and which you can also do online. We'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful and be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule